welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to take a listen to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies out in theaters, VOD, or streaming services. Check out the link at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the first part of this three-part series, kind of kicking off from Weird Science last week. This week's film is actually was released about a week after Weird Science in 1985, a film called Real Genius, and this is starting a three-part series looking at nerds who get revenge in the end. So I guess you can probably imagine what I'm going to follow this up with. Real Genius from 1985. It is a PG-rated film. It has sexual references, comic violence, and language. It probably would be PG-13 today because of some of the uh, innuendo. One hour and 48 minutes is the runtime. Val Kilmer is the main star. Gabe Jarrett, William Atherton, Robert Prescott, Michelle Mayrink, John Grise, Louis Jambalvo, Ed Lauder, and Patty Darvinville are in this film, as well as Dean Devlin, who became a producer of some pretty big blockbusters sometime later. Stargate and Godzilla and Independence Day, of course. The director is Martha Coolidge, and the screenplay credited to Neil Israel, Pat Proft, and P.J. Turek Bay. Now, Neil Israel and Pat Proft, they were a veteran comedic writing team, wrote so many films, Police Academy, Bachelor Party. They even did a lot of the uh, the Naked Gun films and some of these very spoofy kind of movies later. They wrote this script that was inspired by the young geniuses who went to, in Pasadena, California, the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech. Israel and Proft researched by going to that school. They observed students. They watched the faculty. They learned a lot about the school's history, their achievements, their legendary pranks. ABC Motion Pictures optioned their script in 1983. They initially gave it a budget of about $5 million, and they connected with a producer named Brian Grazer to bring it to life. However, it was TriStar Pictures that eventually picked it up, including a two-year contract with Grazer, and that bumped up the cost to about $8 million. And Grazer was looking for somebody to take control of this project. And he really loved, at that time, a 1983 film called Valley Girl. So he pursued Valley Girl's director, Martha Coolidge. And he told Coolidge that the idea for Real Genius was to make having brains something much more heroic than having brawn. Because very macho movies were out in theaters. He wanted to be the counter-programming to that. However, Coolidge initially turned it down, actually more than once, because she felt that the Israel Proft script that she read was the opposite of smart. It relied on a lot of broad, very Animal House-style sexual and scatological humor, college prank hijinks. It seemed very male-centric. It definitely was not something she was interested in. So Grazer brought in a different screenwriting team to try to retool the script, the comedic team of Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. Grazer had just worked with them, with Ron Howard for the film's Night Shift and Splash, and to decrease the frat boy humor and to put in more wit to see if they could keep Coolidge. And Coolidge liked what she read, so she signed on after they had removed a lot of that stuff out. Now, Coolidge was really looking forward to directing Real Genius. She felt that taking control of a science-based film with a lot of visual effects, that's something that would break a barrier for many female directors who were overlooked because of this mentality that 
somehow only men should be interested in such things. She expected much more clever jokes about science, much more emphasis on an intelligent plot if she was going to proceed forward. She wanted smarter characters. She wanted more dramatic stakes for these characters to overcome. And the situation should feel authentic so that audiences come in expecting an intelligent comedy and would get it. Although she was known primarily as a character-oriented director and really still happened to be after this, Coolidge did enjoy the process of working out this puzzle of putting effects within the film, something she was not experienced with at that time. Stunt performers, models, mat shots, animation, mechanical props, all of that was new to her, and she really had to come up to speed in a hurry, and she dove fully in. And during the hours in which the effect shots were being set up, Coolidge also worked out and rehearsed the mechanics of the comedic moments for the film. Lowell and Gans, they were asked to continue on with the project of revising the script to inject much more of a plot, but they really only wanted to work on the jokes. They didn't want to redo the whole movie. So Grazer brought in another writer, WKRP in Cincinnati, TV writer named Peter Torekvay. Later, Peter changed to Torekvay, also happened to be a trans woman later in life. Torekvay clicked instantly with Coolidge. They worked very closely together on this new script for about two months, and Torekvay rewrote the dialogue, created a lot of new characters for the film, including the hyperactive chatterbox named Jordan Cochran, that happens to be a fan favorite, added a lot more of the smart-ass quippery in this film. Coolidge, for her part, added much more plot. She did the space laser action, the black money government funding aspect to the film. Now, Caltech would not allow their name or their location to be used because there were similarities with the film's plot covering Operation Crossbow and the SDI, the Star Wars Defense System, research that they were connected to. So instead, the school's name was changed to PACTEC, and it was shot in nearby colleges like Occidental College and Pomoda College. Coolidge really was striving here for authenticity in her science and her setting. The photographs were commissioned of Caltech's Dabney House and the trademark science-based graffiti you could find there meticulously recreated on their sets. They hired former Caltech students who had been there to advise some of the school's most notorious pranks and some of their zany antics. One prank involved disassembling a car, then reassembling it inside of somebody's dorm room. There was another where there was this lecture where people started bringing boomboxes and recording the professor's lecture. Pretty soon the professor got tired of the students bringing in their tape recorders, so the professor decided to actually have a tape player to play the lecture, so there was almost nobody in the room. Several revisions later, Coolidge loved her script. She loved the wit, she loved the plot developments, especially that her young characters were struggling with such things as romanticized ideas about what's important in life. She also wanted her picture to reflect those beautiful ideals on the screen visually, so she opted for an ultra-widescreen aspect ratio of 235 to 1, not typically used for comedies, especially ones that were set mostly indoors, like Real Genius was going to be. Coolidge wanted to open up up the space so that audiences could observe the body language of the multiple characters as the comedy play out. They could see all of the reactions of everybody on the screen. The story centers on several students who go to PacTech, the fictionalized Caltech, this institution esteemed for its technological breakthroughs. They're currently working on this project to build a high-powered laser. The project is led by this egotistical professor and TV science show host named Jerry Hathaway. Hathaway has been employed by this clandestine group within the Pentagon for 
Operation Crossbow, which is where the military is going to use the laser to vaporize targets from space with sniper-like precision. Enter into the film 15-year-old genius Mitch Taylor. Mitch is recruited by Hathaway to start college early at Pactech. Mitch rooms with the school's prior hot prodigy, this rebellious and smart-alecky senior named Chris Knight. Chris Knight has decided there's much more value in being a slacker at this point of his educational career, I guess, than to continue showing everybody that he's the smartest person on campus. Knight's shenanigans have Hathaway, who has to produce results now in an accelerated four months instead of the originally intended 18. Hathaway is threatening to kick Knight out of school if he's not going to assist in the completing of this laser in the allotted time. A lot more to the story than that, but that's the basic gist of the plot. Now, Coolidge, to open up the screen to that wide aspect ratio, she pursued acclaimed cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt, but the studio wasn't as keen as she was on picking him for this movie because his Oscar win for Close Encounters of the Third Kind made him pretty pricey, and he also had a reputation for slowing down productions because he was a meticulous cinematographer. So Coolidge still did want Zygmunt. She approached him. He loved the idea of doing his first comedy, something he had not done before. And to counter the costs of bringing him on board, at least to TriStar, Coolidge gave him one of her profit points, which he was glad to get, something he was not offered before on previous films. Now, after auditioning several dozen candidates, the casting of Chris Knight came down to two main actors, Val Kilmer and John Cusack. Coolidge did opt for Kilmer because she liked that he was more of a leading man. Cusack still looked like a teenager, not very much older than the 15-year-old that was supposed to be playing opposite him. Kilmer, though, was nervous about auditioning for this film. He sent in a videotape instead of coming in in person, initially, anyway. He had already played the lead in the spoof called Top Secret, but that still had not been released into theaters at that time, so they didn't know what his star power really was. It was released, actually, while they were shooting Real Genius. And to overcome his anxiety, Kilmer decided to do some method acting for his second audition that he was going to do in person, and he decided he was going to behave like the character that he is supposed to portray. Every bit as arrogant, every bit as standoffish as Chris Knight is supposed to be. This is a technique he feels won him the job because of his self-mocking attitude and downplaying his intelligence, which captured the essence of Chris Knight. Coolidge thought that Kilmer was absolutely perfect for the role, but when they actually started to go through rehearsals and then eventually to shoot film, she found Kilmer very erratic. He was intellectually stubborn. He was moody. He was frequently tardy. He questioned nearly everything, especially in terms of what he thought the humor should be in the film. Coolidge thought that the comedy should come from the quality of the jokes, the gags, the wit in the script. Kilmer, though, thought that it should come from the characterizations, from the performances of the actors. Kilmer felt that the villainous professor in particular played too much like a character from a Shakespearean tragedy instead of somebody who's an amusingly self-important buffoon. Kilmer stayed in character throughout the production, and that intimidated the other members of the cast and the crew to the point that Coolidge, she started to get sick of having to deal with it. She pursued additional auditions to find a replacement for Kilmer. Kilmer did find this out. He convinced Coolidge and Grazer to keep him in the film and to try out some of his comedy ideas for his character. He promised it would all work out. For instance, he came up with Knight's custom-made t-shirts that featured phrases like Surf Nicaragua and I Love Toxic Waste. The props department came up with Knight wearing animal slippers throughout the film. And that was because Kilmer, he had a habit of disappearing for no good reason. 
He really wanted to recharge in solitude, but he skipped his ice skating lessons that were needed for the frozen hallway sequences, so they gave him slippers to keep him from falling on his keister, and that became an affectation that he used throughout the film. After auditioning a lot of younger actors who didn't really seem quite right, Coolidge thought it would be easier to find a real teenage genius who happened to be able to act. She found one, actually, somebody who had taken a year off of college at New York University at the age of 14 to do a Broadway play. He had graduated from college, really, in his mid-teen years, and then he went to law school and then eventually sued the Bar Association for saying he was too young because he was under 18. However, Coolidge did not think that he had the right look. He didn't really emote as well outwardly as she thought he should. So they found somebody else to kind of replicate that. A boy named Gabe Jarrett. He came in and he acted out as this kid. John Grise, he beat out Randy Lowell, also known as Randy Dreyfus, Richard's nephew, and Tommy Swordlow for the Laszlo Hollyfield role, the role of this older student who's still hanging around campus. He goes into the closet and nobody knows where he goes. Don't feel bad for Lowell and Swerdlow. They were still cast in smaller roles in the film, Cornell and Bodie, respectively. Grise, originally, he had come in to read for another character named Kent. He was kind of the lackey of the professor, the suck-up. One of the heavies, I guess, of this film. Grise told his agent he didn't want to play another smarmy bad guy. He wanted to see if he could play the character whose name eventually became Hollyfield. Robert Prescott, he went to school with Grise. He happened to be in Maine when Coolidge, who really wanted to get him on board, brought him in to read for the role that was Kent. The Laszlo character was as important as an inclusion in this film because Laszlo represents students from the 1960s. That was a generation of young people who fought for peace. They distrusted the government. And that was kind of a message that he had for the students of the 1980s. Rebel against the government because they're using them to promote policies of war and death. Something that the kids of the 60s very much were vehement against. Michelle Mayrink, she's in this film. She happened to have worked with Coolidge on her two prior films, Valley Girl and Joy of Sex. Coolidge enjoyed her ability to express authentic vulnerability and emotion, and Coolidge actually thought Mayrink reminded her of herself, and Mayrink thought Coolidge was like her sister, so they had kind of a a natural bond between them. Mayrink happened to also appear the year before in Revenge of the Nerds, and that really made her kind of the darling of nerds and geeks everywhere, including Crispin Glover, by the way. He briefly dated her in 1985. Mayrink did leave acting shortly afterward in 1988 to become a Zen Buddhist, and eventually she became an acting coach in her career. Her character, or Jordan, by the way, inspired the personality that was given to Gadget Hackenwrench, one of the characters in 1989's animated Disney Channel series called Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Now, consummate 80s douchebag William Atherton, he plays that role so well in so many movies. He grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, where Coolidge actually happens to be from. They went to many of the same plays. They became good friends during the shoot and still continued on as good friends all the way to this day. Coolidge did send her main actors to a laboratory to learn about how to act around a laser, how to handle all the technical equipment. The actors also did a tour of Caltech as well as Occidental College. They also met with various science advisors for preparation for the roles. Coolidge also brought in top-level consultants from the military, weapons developers, a lot of university representatives. She also studied how a black money operation could be performed as a joint collaboration between the military and higher education. And although Real Genius really does have a fictional premise, they weren't intending this to be something that was absolutely real. 
many aspects did come into place shortly after this film was made. The Navy actually did make a frozen gas laser that was similar to the one that they concocted for this movie a couple of years later. Also, drone technology really is essentially what the military uses for remote strikes now, so the idea is actually there. It may not be a laser from space, but you know, remote assassinations are very much part and parcel to the way that we conduct our military business these days. TriStar Pictures hired space media consultant Richard Dowling. He provided a demonstration of this space plane that was developed for High Frontier, which is a, a private nonprofit organization that was dedicated to space-based defense strategies. He also advised the visual effects crew to how to bring that to life, communicating their needs to TriStar. That really raised a lot of the budget. But production designer Ron Cobb came in. He did the design of the futuristic space plane, among other things. USC physicist Dr. Martin Gunderson, he also happened to have worked on Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program. He helped with the proper use of the lasers in this film. Coolidge wanted the underlying science to be as realistic as possible, and Ron Cobb's glowing visual design of some of the lasers seems very authentic. They would have been impossible for audiences to see if this were absolutely realistic, so they did enhance those for the sake of the movie, but the rest of it seems very much in keeping with the science realm. The film does have a fictional science element, it's not really science fiction in terms of his genre, but Gunderson was there to keep it all grounded and realistic as much as can be in a comedic science film. Gunderson also helped Torquevay with the script, making sure the dialogue, the lingo was all accurate, including tossing in a couple of science-based jokes, but those were ultimately deemed too nerdy to make the final cut unfortunately for the science heads out there. Now, Coolidge says that Real Genius's main theme is the danger of regarding other people on Earth as lesser humans. She felt that the beliefs of superiority among certain people are responsible for many atrocities that have happened throughout human history. For instance, Professor Hathaway sees himself as above his students. He doesn't seem to care about their well-being, per se. He justifies all of that to himself, that they can be used for his own purpose whenever he sees fit, even if that purpose will result in the deaths of many, although not many people are going to know about it because they're doing it all from afar. Themes also include the exploitation of gifted students of science with funding for things that will ultimately go to the destruction of life through projects that are spearheaded by the military-industrial complex instead of for the betterment of life on Earth. The faculty in charge of the education of these young people are using their breakthroughs to get increased grants and more prestige for the school and themselves so they have a rooted interest in seeing them succeed, even if the students don't actually know that what they're working on is indirectly responsible for so much destruction elsewhere. Like the film War Games, the geeky kids here have to save the adults from themselves. The distinction here is that in Real Genius, the young people are the ones being used by the government for illegal acts, in contrast to War Games, where a young person subverts the government through illegal acts and then becomes the hero in the end. The science students here are portrayed sympathetically. They're not mocked for being nerdy. Unlike similar comedies of its era, these so-called nerds have feelings. They have compassion for life as well as their fellow people. They may be incredibly smart, but they're also very likable. They're very attractive. Unlike the socially clumsy and unfashionable way geniuses tend to be depicted in movies like Revenge of the Nerds and others of that ilk, there is a lot of authenticity here to be found beyond the far-fetched underlying plot. The parties depicted in the movie are very similar to those that are celebrated yearly at Caltech. There really was a 12-year-old that was enrolled in Caltech that cracked under the pressure. 
The shaggy-haired burnout Laszlo Hollyfield, he disappears into Knight's closet. He escapes into the hidden tunnels to his personal office in the steam room beneath the school that actually was a combination of two different people who did this in real life. We learn that he's conducting an experiment to process as many entries into the Frito-Lay sweepstakes as possible to assure a high probability of winning. That subplot was based on a real-life incident from 1975 in which students at Caltech devised a way to win a McDonald's contest, earning $3,000 in cash, $150 in food prizes, and a brand new car. Laszlo's character also incorporated elements of this other student that went to Caltech who didn't like physical education, P.E., and he would disappear into the tunnels whenever it was P.E. time under the dorms and set up an office down there to do work rather than be harassed as to why he was not in that class. The pranks of the film are based on real incidents that occurred at Caltech, MIT, as well as Oxford. One featured the laying down of soapy water across a cement floor to slide down that changed for the film to using liquid nitrogen for students to skate and to bobsled. There was also a scene involving a lawn chair floating up using helium balloons. That scene was shot, but it was cut from the film because Coolidge, as well as the studio, thought it was running way too long for comedy. That particular stunt took place at several colleges. There was another anecdote incorporated into the film involving the conversion of a lecture hall into a swimming pool, and that became one of the party sequences in Real Genius. To keep the tone light and funny, Coolidge wanted the students to give the heavies their comeuppance in the end, but she didn't want anybody to get killed, so she asked everybody on the set for ideas, a clever and funny way to use the laser to exact revenge on the corrupt professor and to sabotage Operation Crossbow without anybody dying. So the winner of this semi-contest was production designer Ron Cobb. He was the one to suggest that the laser should be used to heat a large batch of popcorn inside the professor's prize house that he has renovated with diverted funds in the form of a giant pan of Jiffy Pop in the foyer. It's established early on that popcorn is something that Professor Hathaway absolutely abhors, so this was his revenge. They built a prop house in Crystal Springs Ranch in Canyon Country, California. It could fall apart. It could be reassembled for additional takes. They constructed an elaborate hydraulic system to fill the house with popcorn. A popcorn manufacturer provided 38 40-foot tractor trailers full of popcorn. They were all on standby, ready for the take 140 tons were used 100 tons on the outside in those trailers 40 of them were inside that had to be popped in a nearby warehouse with several popping machines very high industrial popping machines running 24 7 for six weeks unfortunately those popping machines overheated and the popcorn caught fire and that burnt down the warehouse that was a big setback they continued popping the popcorn outdoors on a hollywood lot treating the kernels now with flame retardant chemicals because they found out it was flammable, and that did make it inedible. It produced sometimes suffocating dust particles, and it was also toxic to animals, so they had to cover it all up so birds wouldn't eat it. The total cost of the popcorn stunt was about $1.2 million, with $200,000 just for the cost of the popcorn to pop alone. By the way, in 2009, there was a Mythbusters episode. If you're a fan of the TV show Mythbusters, they discovered that a laser actually can pop a popcorn kernel, in small quantities, they can pop a few, but eventually if you were trying to do a mass quantity of them, they would burn. That popcorn also could not destroy a house in real life, so that was kind of a fictional aspect of it. It's still a place for laughs, and it works for this film. 
There are some montage music sequences in this film. They play over clips of scenes that look like they were meant to have dialogue, but they actually were intentionally done this way. None of the people mouthing words in those montages, those were not scenes that were cut out and then jammed into here for an abbreviated form, by the way. Coolidge, though, she originally handpicked the music with Michael Papali for Valley Girl. He was brought back here for this film. Coolidge really realized the value of within Valley Girl of songs to underscore emotions and to bring additional layers to films without having to add additional expository dialogue. She wanted in particular, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. That song from Tears for Fears because it was too perfect the song for the themes of the movie to pass up, but it was too expensive. TriStar didn't want to spend the money, but when the production did run long, the song became a little bit more passe, so it did come down in price by the end, and they were able to secure it for only $75,000, which is still pricey, but within their budget. Real Genius is also notable for being the first film to use the internet as part of its promotional push. There was a press junket that was done in a new and unique way for films over CompuServe, which was kind of a precursor or maybe even a competitor to America Online for a few years. They used various terminals for the press to ask questions, and at the end they would gain a transcript of the text answers that the makers of the film would give. Due to the expanding talent in front of and behind the camera, as well as this $2 million price tag for effects, the final budget of Real Genius ballooned to about $13 million. Now, given that Real Genius in the theaters had made $13 million, that was kind of a disappointment. It debuted at only number seven on its initial week of release. It was unable to compete with other science-based comedies. Back to the Future, Weird Science were also very strong in theaters. And there was also pretty strong competition in the theaters for a lot of the same audiences. Pee-wee's Big Adventure came out the same week, as well as Summer Rental, the uh, John Candy movie. So it really was buried like somebody under so much popcorn. By rough competition, it, it just couldn't compete. But Real Genius did catapult to cult film status when it did hit home video and its cable showings over the years, it, it became a staple, really, at technical schools, especially Caltech and MIT. And it's seen as one of the 80s comedies following Ghostbusters to make science and technology very cool for younger viewers. Some scientists working today, including notable Nobel Prize winners, credit real genius for getting them interested in pursuing a career in science. It really romanticized going to a technical school, so a lot of kids who have an inclination for science and math really did want to pursue that and become the next Chris Knight. Many people in school studying math and science really do love Real Genius. It is a film that gets them. They get it. Kilmer's very funny, channeling his inner Bill Murray here, delivering his deadpan, funny, hilarious comments mixed with physical pratfalls. Many memorable, funny lines in this film, inspired performances, a pleasantly irreverent vibe. It definitely is a film that can stand up to repeated viewings. And I think that if you watch it, you know, you might want to watch it again. I've watched it twice this week and I liked it even better the second time around. It's a movie that really does grow on you. And people who have seen it over the years many times consider it one of their favorite films. Many people anyway. So that's why I'm going to give Real Genius three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means I do think this is a good comedy. I think it's very thoughtful, very well performed. I think it seems like a slighter film than a lot of people probably will give it credit for on first glance. But if you watch it enough times, I think you will see that it is a very intelligent and thoughtful and thought-provoking film underneath it for many of the reasons that I gave through the course of this review. So three and a half stars out of four for Real Genius. Now, as I mentioned, it did grow as a cult film over time. 
So much so that in 2006, Real Genius 2 was announced. Val Kilmer actually was interested in starring. He wanted to return to the light comedies of his early career because he was doing a lot of films he really didn't like doing. So he was going to come back, but we don't know what happened to that. I guess somewhere along the line, the money people lost interest. In 2010, it was rumored that Columbia Pictures and producer Brian Grazer were going to make a remake rather than a sequel of Real Genius, but it went into development hell and never quite got made. In 2014, just four years later, a Real Genius TV show was in the works to be produced by NBC by Adam Sandler's Happy Madison Productions, among others. This reboot was developed as a workplace comedy series, kind of a mix of The Office and Big Bang Theory. The plot would involve an eccentric tech wizard who mentors his naive but brilliant new co-worker. The creative team was Craig DiGiorgio of Workaholics fame and David King of Parks and Recreation. And then... Uh, nothing happened. So somewhere along the line, everybody has these ideas of bringing back real genius, but nobody's quite a genius enough to figure out how to make it work, whether on the large screen or small screen. So maybe it's good that it remains as a cherished film from the 1980s, rather than to be sullied with trying to bring Val Kilmer back or trying to recreate it with actors that are not quite as good or appealing as the ones they put into this film. Especially since so many shows now have a scientific genius as the hero, the novelty of real genius for the mid-1980s has become the norm nowadays, so it doesn't have that special quality anymore, except when viewed through the lens of yesteryear. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this look at Real Genius. If you have your own thoughts on Real Genius you want to impart, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can write to me. My email address is there, as well as links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. Just send a comment, and I'll try to respond as much as I can. Sometimes I just like your comment because I don't have a lot to add. But if I do, I will say a few words back. I like the engagement, so feel free to do that anytime. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I mentioned it during the course of this review. It's no surprise, I suppose, if you know your nerd revenge films of the 1980s. Revenge of the Nerds, of course, from 1984. A different look at nerds, a little bit more stereotypical look, but definitely has the nerds as heroes. A film that I watched probably way too many times as a kid and then never again, really, as an adult. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that and seeing if it holds up today revenge of the nerds from 1984 on next week's episode so please watch that if you want to keep up with the reviews as i get to them until next time thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world but not in spaceships that are going to shoot lasers at you in 80s movies (laughs) 